You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Quest for Sustainable Business, an epic journey in search of corporate responsibility. Green and growing, re-engineering growth, proud pioneering traditions. Europe's recent CSR policy experiments are a relatively recent phenomenon, but they build on a long and rich tradition of responsibility in its member states, and this is especially true for Germany. My first visit to Germany was in 2002, when I was still Director of Sustainability Services at KPMG in South Africa. We were conducting a safety, health and environmental corporate governance audit for a multinational chemical company and had site visits in Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, United States and South Africa. I have two enduring impressions from that visit. First was the number of wind turbines I saw as we drove from Frankfurt to the chemical plant and the second was how systems driven the SHE team was. There were models and spreadsheets and management systems for everything. It was hard not to be impressed. Since then, I have visited Germany numerous times over the years in my capacity as visiting professor of CSR at Mannheim University, Steinbeis University in Berlin, and the Catholic University, Eichstadt Ingolstadt. I also work closely with the Frankfurt Headquartered Institute for Corporate Culture Affairs, or ICCA, which has played a central role in promoting CSR in Germany, not least through the publications it has sponsored, such as the ICCA Handbook on Corporate Social Responsibility, the A to Z of Corporate Social Responsibility, and Responsible Business. Former director of ICCA, Nick Tolhurst, and I co-edited The World Guide to CSR, and he and his ICCA colleague, Aaron Mbaye, also wrote an excellent chapter on CSR in Germany for that book. Tolhurst and Mbaye explain how the national psyche of Germany is strongly predisposed to sustainable business, with influences ranging from German philosophers such as Kant and Marx to political developments such as the social welfare state and the Green Party. There has been business leadership too, the entrepreneur Robert Bosch was one of the first entrepreneurs in Germany to introduce the eight-hour working day in 1906, while the companies such as Faber-Castell, Thyssen-Krupp, Volkswagen and many others show a deeply rooted culture of social engagement. In fact, I remember from South Africa how Volkswagen's system of participatory decision-making was highly praised for ensuring that workers were treated fairly and had a direct say in how their company was run, even before apartheid had crumbled. I also know from my work on the book Landmarks for Sustainability that the first credit unions were established in the 1850s in Germany, thereby giving the unbanked an opportunity to borrow from the savings pooled by themselves and their fellow members, now the World Council of Credit Unions boasts 172 million members through 46,000 credit unions in 97 countries. Perhaps it is not surprising, therefore, that Germany also leads on SRI, or Socially Responsible Investment, having promulgated a law that obliges investment funds, 
predominantly pension funds, to disclose the extent to which social, environmental and ethical criteria are accounted for in their investment policies. Another area of leadership is ethical consumption. The world's second eco-labeling scheme, the Blue Angel Seal, was launched in Germany in 1978. The first was the organic label established in the United Kingdom in 1967. Given this pioneering start, it is hardly surprising that ethical consumerism in Germany is among the strongest anywhere in the world. According to research from market research group GFKNOP, German consumers are willing to pay a 5-10% to price premium for many ethical products. In order to share best practices, the German government has also established a roundtable on corporate codes of conduct, which aims to improve labour and social standards in developing countries through voluntary codes of conduct. Achievements and Challenges Beyond these general areas of progress, there are some great case studies of sustainable business in German companies, such as the way in which business ethics is used as a management instrument at Henkel. CEO Ulrich Lehner writes in the ICCA Handbook on Corporate Social Responsibility, and I quote, Henkel does not regard business ethics or related issues like corporate governance or corporate social responsibility, including corporate citizenship, as cost centers, but as value-creating, or at least value-conserving, regulative instruments of modern em- enterprises. End quote. Another case profiled in Responsible Business looks at how sustainable business is used as a corporate strategy, rather than a marketing tactic, at the small generic drug firm Beta Farm in the historical Bavarian town of Augsburg, Its view, as Nick Tolhurst discovered in his interview with the head of the Beta Institute, is that, and I quote, you cannot dissociate CSR and say, this is my CSR bit, rather, I am CSR, it is me, in a way I interact with employees, in the way I deal with resources, in the way I deal with this or that, end quote. Another celebrated case is BASF voted Europe's most socially responsible firm in the good company ranking, and today making great strides on climate protection, energy efficiency, occupational health and safety, education and sustainable investment. Of course, sustainable business in Germany is not without its challenges. One area of ongoing concern is gender equality. Germany has one of the highest gender pay gaps in Europe, The average gross hourly earnings of German women are 77% of men's in the public sector and 73% in the private sector. Furthermore, German women are only half as likely to as men to hold a managerial position. Another sustainable business issue that has been in the spotlight is in the area of data privacy. As Time magazine reported on 27 May 2008, The corporate spying scandals in Germany began in 2005 and 2006 with Deutsche Telekom employing a private security firm to scrutinize the phone records of journalists and members of its supervisory board. A retired IBM executive and former president of Germany's main business lobby condemned the practice as reprehensible and disgusting, 
comparing it to the methods of the East German Stasi police. This is not capitalism, he said. It's not my understanding of the market economy. Then in 2008, there was an infamous case in which the German retailer Lidl was accused of spying on its employees, recording personal details in an operation that included surveillance records with comments on whether employees seemed capable, what kinds of friends they had, and even how often they went to the toilet. Conversations were recorded in minute detail. Electronics giant Siemens has also been accused of spying on employees, and employees alleged that staff doctors at automaker Daimler reported on employees. An amateurist law professor at Berlin's Free University said, and I quote, Although the language of the courts is very clear that this kind of behavior is not allowed, there does appear to be a certain cultural shift taking place, perhaps perhaps driven by the debate about the threat of terrorism, certain standards are weakening, end quote. Sustainability is boring. My other connection with Germany is less to do with the country and more to do with an individual, the German Michael Braungart, co-founder and co-author with Bill McDonough of the Cradle to Cradle concept. I interviewed Braungart in 2008 for the top 50 sustainability books and was inspired and entertained by much of what he had to say. Braungart told me his story as follows, and I quote, In 1987, I was looking at complex household products and I identified in the TV set 4,360 different chemicals. And I thought it doesn't help just to take out any toxic stuff. I asked the simple question, do you really want to own 4,360 different chemicals, or do you want to watch Larry King live on TV? And I was claimed to be an eco-communist for that. End quote. In fact, it was probably Braungart's leading role in Greenpeace's protests against the Swiss chemical industry that earned him that dubious title. But the net effect was still positive. The chairman at Sibagaigi, Alex Krauer, approached Braungart and challenged him to work in partnership on solutions for green or sustainable chemistry with a budget of about $2 million. Braungart accepted the offer and immediately set about challenging his benefactor. I quote, I told him that sustainability is boring. I said to Alex Krauer, what would you say if I asked you about your relationship with your wife? How would you characterize it? As sustainable? If this is the bigger goal, sustainability, then I really feel sorry because it doesn't celebrate human creativity and human nature. Braungart is similarly scathing about the concept of green chemistry. He says, I'm just talking about good chemistry. Chemistry is not good when the chemicals accumulate in the biosphere. That's just stupid. Young scientists immediately understand that a chemical is not good when it accumulates in mother's milk. Chemistry is not good when it changes irreversibly biological systems like EDTA. It's just primitive chemistry. So we can now make far better chemistry, far better material science, far better physics, and we don't need to put this into green or sustainable niches. Braungart went on to found the Environmental Protection Encouragement Agency, 
which developed a system of life cycle development in the 1990s. Then he met the American architect Bill McDonough, and they began to work together, writing the book Cradle to Cradle and founding MBCD, which offers Cradle to Cradle certification. He reflected that, and I quote, Bill helped me a lot to phrase it in a way that people could really understand, as being about the management of the biosphere and of the technosphere, as technical nutrients and biological nutrients. So there is no waste. It's just materials going back into the technosphere and the biosphere, and then they can be beneficial, end quote. One of the things I love about Braungart is not only his feisty spirit, but also his inherently positive approach. In his usual grasshopper-minded way, he began by telling me, and I quote, Another thing which I learned was that the biomass of ants is so much higher than of human beings, and they are not an environmental problem because they do different nutrient management than we do, end quote. Then came his quasi-philosophical message. He said, so we don't need to apologize for being on this planet. We don't need to minimize our footprint. We can have a big footprint, but make it a wetland. I understand when you have a lack of something, not enough light, not enough energy, then you need to minimize it to reduce or avoid that. But when you have more than enough input, such as solar energy, then you can make things which celebrate abundance. Here, Braungart makes a very important technical point. The thing is the differentiation between efficiency and effectiveness. Nature is completely inefficient, but amazingly effective, whereas the traditional eco-efficiency only optimizes the existing stuff and makes it less bad. At the end, it's perfectly bad. Using this logic, East Germany has been protecting the environment far more than West Germany just by inefficiency. So when you do something wrong, don't make it perfect. What happened in the last 20 years? We basically lost 20 years by optimizing the wrong stuff. This gets to the heart of Braungart and McDonough's cradle-to-cradle message of making things good by design, not just less bad. Similarly, he says, it's not about respecting diversity. It's about supporting diversity. It's about celebrating diversity. And the social dimension is at least as important as the environmental one. We think that we can make things which are good for economy, good for society, and good for the environment at the same time. So the human footprint can be beneficial. And you can see this even in a city of Berlin. Species diversity in Berlin is four times higher than in the surrounding agricultural area. So we can be beneficial. We don't need to apologize that we are here. Limits to growth. Another link I have to the region is also based on an interview I did for the top 50 sustainability books, in this case with Dennis Meadows, co-author of the 1972 Limits to Growth book. Meadows is not German, but I interviewed him in Vienna, where he was teaching. The Limits to Growth study was the world's first comprehensive computer model of the world's economic, social and environmental systems, and all the scenarios it ran predicted an overshoot and collapse outcome for society. Unfortunately, his 
conclusions haven't altered, and his vision of the future is far less sunny than that of Braungart. Even so, I think it is a message we need to hear. When I asked Meadows what his hopes for the future were, he answered rather bleakly, saying, and I quote, I don't have hope that we will sustain our current Western industrial society. In 1972, it would still have been possible, I think, and that was our analysis, that there was still time to slow down and to sustain something more or less indefinitely. But since 1972, there's been phenomenal growth, and now we're far above the limits. And there is, as far as I can tell, absolutely no possibility whatsoever of sustaining industrial activity, material consumption, energy use and air pollution flows at current levels. They need to come down drastically. Every moment they're above the limits, we're damaging and deteriorating the basic productive capacities of the planet. So I don't hope for that. End quote. I pressed him on how he felt the future might unfold. I see some drivers, he said. I see that oil depletion and climate change are quite far advanced. Water is going to be a really serious problem soon. But there's lots of stuff. It's just that we're running out of some things. I think those shortages will drive the system. Which way? I don't know. Take energy, for example. Generically, there are two ways you could imagine the global community responding to the perception that oil is now declining. One is to set up international research institutes which begin to look for new ways of generating power from renewables and sharing that technology widely. The other way is that the big energy users basically try to grab whatever they can and hold it for themselves. And that's what we're doing. So you see, the future has two generically different paths. I don't think humans will disappear off the planet. I think our current industrialized society will profoundly change. I think our political systems will change. I don't think democracy is going to survive the downturn. There's a drift already in important countries towards more centralized, less democratic forms of government. So there will be big changes. End quote. Meadows did conclude with one small positive concession, which is about attitude. We were talking about his ex-wife and co-author of Limits to Growth, Danella Meadows, and he told me, I remember always on her office door was a little motto which said, even if I knew the world would end tomorrow, I'd plant a tree today. And that seems a good note to end the episode on. Next, we make our way to Hungary.